Listen podcast is back, this time with a new type of special edition episodes that will pop up every now and then, called Q&A specials. Basically, you listeners and readers of shoegazing.com get to ask questions to some famous names from the classic shoe industry. This round is with Daniel Vegan, the Swede who made a name of himself working at the bespoke department of Gaziano and Girling in England for 10 years. He placed second in the World Championships in Shoemaking 2018 and then he won the title in 2019. Last year he left Gingy to start his own bespoke brand, Catella Shoemaker. And if you missed it, you can hear Daniel talk about the dedication in episode 3 of the Shoecasing podcast. A very popular episode. In this Q&A special though, it's you who have decided the topics. A big thanks to all who sent in questions. We couldn't fit in all of them, but we got quite a lot covered in the near hour we talked. Among other things, Daniel's view on the current boom of more casual footwear and how he thinks this will affect his business, a breakdown on why bespoke shoes cost so much, how he works with the bottom of the lasts, why he is often wearing cheap New Balance shoes himself, and much more. So enjoy the listen. All right, uh, Daniel Wigan, welcome once again to the Shoegazing Podcast. Thank you once again. <laughs> you are the first uh, that are uh, part of a second uh, episode. Uh, and this is also a sort of special one where we have had... Uh, listeners or followers or readers uh, sending in their questions. It's a Q&A special for the first time in the Shoegazing Podcast's history. <laughs> very, very exciting. Yes. I'm very honored to be the first. To... Uh, I, mean, I think it would be interesting. It would be a bit more varied uh, than uh, these episodes usually are where I focus on one topic uh, and around that, but here we have, uh, we'll see how many questions that will go through, but uh, uh, quite uh, varied and they're sent in from all around the world, from both uh, shoe nerds and also some bespoke Nor makers and other And folks. normal people. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, or actually not too many normal people, no, no. only different states of uh, <laughs> unnormal. Yeah, abnormal. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think we should start with a question from Jacob Marshman, who uh, seemed to work with shoes. He's, uh, he's writing this. Um, As a retailer of high-end footwear, we're seeing a drastic change from formal business wear to more casual uh, sense of dress and in turn footwear. My question for Daniel would be, does he see a future in continuing to produce such beautiful formal shoes or does he expect to be pushed towards offering a level of bespoke footwear that is more inclusive of the more casual, um, would you say? I think this has been a topic for many years. I think I've had the question before. It's a, it's a quite common question, yeah. both, both for people in the industry and also like maybe more cons from a consumer perspective that you're... Um, look, looking at different shoes and, and I think a lot of people I think what's happened is not a lot of people or not the same amount of people have a huge use for a big collection of very formal shoes um, I think a lot of people s 
see these shoes and find them really beautiful and desirable and they definitely want a pair or 10 pairs or, or however many they would like to have but I think they probably find that it's harder to find the occasion to wear all these shoes. A lot of uh, office environments have more casual dress codes um, and also as I think the the landscape of people buying classic men's shoes is it's way more global now and mm -hmm. there's a lot of areas with climates that are maybe not particularly suited for the traditional shoes and there you see a lot more loafers slipper types commissions they're like in a formal style um, but there's definitely a lot more demand for things other than like the traditional like capto oxford in black or dark brown and so on um, maybe it's just my type of client that are maybe a little bit more adventurous um, but I don't I don't particularly make a huge amount of these shoes it's probably something that's a little bit closer further down the casual and whether it be a full brogue semi brogue a little bit more vibrant color whether it's patina or some some other type of leather but it's still quite at least from what I've seen, it's the quite uh, elegant dressy shoes. Yeah, the more like you said, casual colors and uh, yeah. Models. I think it's mostly color and maybe texture of the leather where people start to bend the rules first. Because I still feel like you know those kind of toe shapes, the bespoke makers and 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 sole finishings that makers like me do on our shoes they're they're almost desirable whether you have a, a need for formal shoes or not like you look at it as a beautiful object and you're just like oh this is something i want to have or wear you know it's almost like you're not really sure when you're going to wear it but you know you want to wear it at some point um but yeah i think once you start to building a small collection you you find that you might venture into heavier boots, uh, lighter, more formal like summer shoes, like loafers and so on. So I think it's, it's going to be a lot more common in future that people have a wider range of mm. shoes rather than only buying lace-up Oxford shoes and building a huge collection of those. It's only me who... Stubborn in <laughs> yeah, I would say that uh, you know, judging from your shoe collection, you are a little bit of an anomaly, perhaps. Yeah, I get a lot of uh, when I share these uh, uh, photos where I shot mm, the whole collection. Yeah, yeah. Everyone is just commenting on all the brown Oxfords, and yeah, think it's so boring. And uh, but I yeah. think like if if somebody dedicates as much time and uh, writing, doing podcasts as you do. It's obvious that you are of a slightly obsessive nature, and uh, you find something you like, yeah. and you know you you know you you go back for the same fix. I always, like you say, we we want the shoes that we wear, mm. and for me, this is the shoes that I wear. But for most people, yeah. that like you say, we need more casual yeah, stuff. So or I think blah, for blah, blah, the, they, yeah, for people that, for that that love that kind of shoe, there's not going to be a problem wearing those shoes a lot. Um, there's no dress codes really, you know, other than the rare occasion banning dress shoes. Um, but it's nice to see that there's a way for people that just love shoes, but not necessarily have a huge need for formal shoes that they can venture into the world of bespoke shoes or high-end footwear in general. 
and and find something that suits their wardrobe or their lifestyle or or whatever whether what about more you know chunky stuff uh, heavier boots uh, will catella do that as well i think we you know we don't see a huge amount of those kind of orders but they do come in i think something if if that's something that we would like to make i think we have to start with making samples and showing people that it's something that we we can make because i think a lot of people they don't really think of a bespoke shoemaker as a place that that makes these kind of shoes mm. and uh, sometimes you know those workwear things can be a little bit easier to fit they're a bit larger generally and they're not so dependent on being super sleek um close fitting shoes so you can maybe find a comfortable fit is something more um like ready to wear and something that's you can kind of buy off the rack um but there are people that once they realize that they can actually have kind of whatever you want um it definitely sparks their imagination a little bit and they start to think like hey you know i have a lot of these shoes but i'd like something for my ranch or whatever you know i have a lot of some customers down in in texas where you obviously have a huge western boot culture um and they're worn by people that definitely not never wear formal clothes but they're quite happy to make the investment in 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 western boots and uh, they would probably be more interested in something of a more rugged nature um and you know get a get a bit of excitement out of the customizable uh, you know that they can customize these shoes and 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 spec them out the way that they would like whether it be leather soles shape whatever so speaking of uh, the u.s i mean looking at that market today the workwear uh, style with especially then with uh, the different types of boots uh is massive uh it hasn't really made its way uh, over overseas uh in the same way here in europe and i believe also asia it's more of a sort of like um uh, a niche yeah a niche exactly mm-hmm. there's of course those people but while in the us it's more, more of the, the smiths uh, yeah that type of shoes where, where do you see that uh, going and what does that um, affect for the bespoke uh, i think business? that people i think there's a lot of people that their first you know experience in trying to you know wear a certain style whether it like traditional menswear or if they're into streetwear or or workwear you know to just you know simplify these segments a little bit is that uh, maybe the it's I would see it with people of my generation that the first time they really pay attention or start to like build their wardrobe, they probably start with workwear. Maybe not. Everybody wears a pair of jeans, and then they maybe start to be like, you know, see the whole world of denim, and you know, start to really nerd out on that a little bit. Um, But then, um, and then you have all like the, the typical like Red Wings boots, and you know, those kind of more like casual shoes. And I think what's going to happen with that generation is that once they've had all these kind of brands that are most commonly available, they're going to want something else. And they're going to want something that's within that kind of family of shoes, but maybe, you know, bespoke fit, um, you know, higher quality leathers, you know, having the choice to really 
because as the longer you're in a hobby the more specific you get you know more what you want and then you realize that it's not out there perhaps and then you're going to need somebody to maybe make it for you and that's where i think a lot of these i'm not i'm not hugely knowledgeable in what these brands are doing but i would imagine that obviously bespoke and customized everything is a bit of a trend and a and a buzzword so i wouldn't be surprised if a lot of these brands will or or are already offering made to order or customized yeah. options and we see it quite a lot from asian brands like mm. indonesia we have a lots of work where uh, makers making fully handmade mm. customizable shoes not mm. still uh, without bespoke loss or yeah. uh, made to measure loss but mm. uh, yeah maybe that's the direction we'll yeah i think like every every everybody wants to develop their product and it can be difficult with very traditional silhouettes and 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 products that the whole the whole idea of them is that they're kind of old school so it's hard to design a new a new shoe or a new style completely that's more contemporary and for that to be accepted and appreciated Mm. by your customers so it's more about you know like classic men's shoes are like most of the shoes bespoke makers make and 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 um, consumers buy are basically styles that have their roots in the 20s to the 40s and then they're just tweaks on that you know you change the toe shape a little bit but construction wise leather wise you know it's all very similar and if you start to make something once you put a sneaker sole on it it's over <laughs> like it's not it's not a then it's something else we can tell make sneakers everything has a price (laughs) but uh, it's a i find sneakers to be very complicated to make well in a one-off format they're they're they were made to be mass produced and are best made with the machines and a lot of the things like cup soles and so on you have to do molds it gets very expensive to make one-offs and i see a lot of sneakers where you've tried to make them in a way that it's easier to just make one pair they don't always look quite right or you lose a lot of what's cool about sneakers when you try to make them out of other materials and other sole constructions to make it to suit the shoemaker Mm. Um, it becomes a little bit of a compromise that doesn't it's not that appealing to me but i think in the future you know depending on where like 3d printing goes and what kind of manufacturing methods especially makes makes it easier to make uh, one off for small runs of the sole units because the uppers they're really pretty much made as the way as any shoe uppers you have you have a pattern and you cut the pieces and you stitch them together but the way that, you know a lot of the soles the sole is a very important part in the in the sneaker mm. and uh especially the cup soles anything that requires making a mold for every size and every width it it, it can really the costs can be a little bit yeah. <laughs> intimidating it's easier to cut off pieces of leather yeah you have like have... you can make like eva soles like the kind of early runners mm, and yeah. so on they're not too bad but it's um i think it, i think it's it to think that because you can make really good hand sewn welted classic shoes it doesn't mean that you can automatically just the next week make a sneaker that looks right it's a different aesthetic it's a different construction and even though it's probably in a lot of ways a lot simpler 
if you've never done it before, you're still going to need practice. Maybe not as much, but you need to do it a lot to get good at it, whether it's, uh, you know, sneakers, slippers, riding boots, whatever, you know, regardless of what it is and the, and the difficulty level, you, you're going to have to practice them all to do them really well. Yeah. Cool. Uh, let's take the second question here. It's uh, from uh, Simon Gunselman, who I believe is a bespoke shoemaker himself. Um, he, he has a question about work-related injuries. Uh, he says that I have made uh, I have had massive issues after five years uh, from inflated tendons up and down my arms, carpal tunnel surgery on both hands and other things. Uh, so he want to know what uh, you do to keep yourself in shape, if at all. Uh, sports massively helps him. Um, and uh, he also said it would be interesting to hear about. Uh, oh, he says um, it would be interesting to hear about this from him because I know a truckload of shoemakers who ha- all have their tinier or bigger problems. So how has this been for you? For me, I think I've been quite fortunate. I haven't really had any issues, especially not that been really prolonged or been challenging to, to cure or get rid of. In the beginning, I had a little bit of like strained tendons. I think I was really tensing up my hands because you're not really comfortable in holding all the tools and they feel a bit awkward so you compensate by just like cramping onto them you know especially like just like holding really heavy shoes in one hand with a wooden last in if it's like a size 14 it's like holding a heavy basketball it's kind of like really you don't really know how to grab it properly um and that I did actually go to a, to a, a fellow that helped me out a little bit and pulled pulled me all kinds of ways to get it to yeah. release some tensions. And it after that it, it kind of went away and never really came back. Um, uh, in the beginning, I tried to go when I started my apprenticeship and my shoemaking career. I was still like trying to go to the gym a lot, and but a few years into it, it that kind of faded away, just out of lack of time or you know the inconvenience of um, of dragging myself to the gym rather than just doing more shoes. Uh, so I haven't had anything yet. Knock on wood. Hopefully, I won't have any in a while. I think one of the reasons that I've been quite fortunate is because I have been probably had a quite varied work situation in that I make both last and do some pattern cutting and do some making. It's not as static as it can no, be. No, I think um, there's a lot of people in the industry that you start out as maybe, especially I think the bottom making part where you sit down on quite small chairs and it can be a, not a very ergonomic working position a lot of the time. And also the the times that you have to spend, especially at the beginning, to get the work done, you really put a lot of hours in. Hopefully, if you're if you're doing it right, um, you're gonna just sitting in any position for that long is probably not that healthy for you. So I would recommend most people to like try to get out of the chair at least once an hour. Try to do do something. Um, and find different positions to yeah and i think you know there's a there's this idea that you have to do everything in your lap kind mm. of the traditional way but you know and 
and I'm, I work a lot like that, but I definitely think that there's, there's a lot of people that are experimenting with stands and so on. And I think, you know, I think changing your position a lot is important. I don't think just because you put it on a stand, I don't think it's good to sit with that stand in that position for 10 hours straight. Um, try to move circulation and also try to keep in mind your, your posture. It's very easy to start your day with a good posture and by the end of the day you're like kind of look like a macaroni bending over those shoes and trying to get the job done. Um, but yeah, and obviously like the like the the guy who asked the question is go into the gym and trying to, you know, do different things and building muscle and, and probably core strength to mm -hmm. save your back a bit, I think is is hugely important. And then obviously you know everyone's different maybe some people are very sensitive to this and some people can just treat their body like shit for years and they're they're fine but usually it'll, it'll catch up to everyone what are you doing so, in a, you mentioned that you skipped the gym but are you doing any other at the moment i just i just run yeah. um and i wouldn't say that that's you know something that is particularly good for shoemaking you're probably better off like I said, like core exercises mm. and trying to make sure your shoulders and elbows and things are, are strong because... It's more of the overall... Uh, yeah, yeah and I think a lot health. of people when they talk about like carpal, sun, carpal tunnel syndromes and these kind of tendons and it's... I see a lot of people working really with really blunt tools and things like that and you have to start to use a lot of force instead. And so it's really important that you try to work, you know, the whole cliche, like work smarter, not harder to make sure your, you know, your, your toolkit is in good shape and sharpen your knife. Yeah. People sharpen your knives. Uh, it's probably the most common thing I see, especially with the, you know, people that are new in the trade because sharpening knives well is quite difficult and it's something that you don't think about so you you know you, you you start learning shoemaking and you think like oh what a pain i have to learn to sharpen knives but that is half the job before you can sharpen knives and a, and a few other basic things you can't really do the work so you should probably better off learning to sharpen a knife before you even start making a shoe because you're not going to know if it's if, if it's your technique that's poor or your 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 knife edge that's poor and every time I, uh, an apprentice would ask for help or something, I always ask them, you know, is the knife sharp? And nine out of ten times it's not. And unless that's taken care of, it doesn't really matter because, yeah, it's hugely important. And mm. even if you're experienced, you just get a different result when the when the tools are really nice and crispy. It's you just can you can't make the same elegant cuts when you have to use a lot of force. Uh, because you're you're working at the edge of your ability, you need to be more within a comfort zone to do beautiful work. If if you're like barely you know managing, and your like arms are shaking because you have to pull so hard, it's not going to look very precise. So, yeah. I think that's where people really mess up their hands, is that they they hold the knife wrong and it's blunt. Mm. That's a huge issue. Mm. Um, so you want to do think twice cut once um and you know 
do long single cuts rather than chopping away at it like you were like making like a wooden figure you know mm. um like try to be pro try to not use your knife and your hands that much like use your head a bit more <laughs> so, sounds easy i can presume it might not yeah be, but yeah it's yeah, like that's, that's something that i really tried to start to think about lately is that i've always been like a bit um i don't know what to call it um self-conscious about what it looks like when i work um i compare i like I, I like to listen to like youtube channels with people that like play instruments and things and they mention a lot um, because they're they're interesting because they're nerds too and uh, every nerd is the same <laughs> they just change uh, item or yeah. activity and a lot of them is what they seem to focus a lot on whether they play guitar or piano is they like okay i can do this now but I, I don't like the way it looks when i do it like how can i change it so it looks more elegant or easier and also like a lot of musicians have problems with this like carpal tunnel syndromes and overstrain just kind of out of the sheer amount of practice involved so then it's like okay how can i be lighter in my touch and so on mm. And I wouldn't say in any way or form that like I'm turning into an elegant shoemaker, but I try to keep it in mind that like, okay, how can I do this kinder to the body so that I can do it for longer, hopefully, because I don't have a problem now, but you know, I can't really imagine myself doing anything else. Uh, so you're still quite young. Yeah. And I'm still quite young. So there's, there's, um, hopefully got a lot more time ahead of me than in in my past so if and if i want that to be the case the first thing is to stay healthy yeah. um so i'm hoping that you know this might help <laughs> it, it'd be hard to compare what would happen if i didn't think about it but if if we have if i have another if we have another podcast in 20 years and i'm still fine you know yeah then we'll know good. <laughs> yeah <laughs> All right. Um, here's a question from uh, Mohammed Afan. Uh, mm. uh, he, he runs a shoe factory in India. The brand is Bridland, I know. Uh, I'd like to ask Daniel, what's his go-to pair of shoes and why? And in the offhand chance that they're not classic shoes, he wants to know why. So this is a very controversial subject. Yes. It's, it's and I know the answer, so... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> shoe... Um, uh, yeah, Jesper will know if I'm lying. <laughs> um yeah i don't wear a lot of dress shoes in my normal life i think when i started with shoemaking one of the reasons was because i really liked shoes and i liked wearing shoes but my obsession is with shoemaking not necessarily shoe wearing and i'm always if i'm wearing shoes that i made myself i find myself spending a lot of time thinking about how these shoes fit and how they look and how they crease and all kinds of obsessive thoughts and i'm for always, yourself or worried that no others would yeah think? sometimes usually you know i don't see a lot of people in my day-to-day -day life especially not during covid <laughs> <laughs> um which has kind of reduced uh, the need for formality to yeah. a very low level at the moment. Um, so for me, it's become more of like an occasion. I really like wearing them and I like wearing them, you know, if I'm in London or if I'm going to see clients or if I'm going to uh, an event of any kind. 
where I might be wearing something other than my work clothes. Um, but I'm always a little bit self-conscious that I've, I always feel like people are really looking at my shoe and judging them because obviously I'm a shoemaker and a fairly good one and I'm expecting that everyone looking at my shoes should these should be like like they were created out of the atmosphere and just perfect in every way imaginable and as a shoemaker it can be really tricky to find the time to really put that kind of effort into your own shoes because if you have any kind of successful shoemaking business you're always behind <laughs> and there's uh, definitely a shoe for a client that needs to be a higher priority than your own yeah the shoes of the shoemaker is rarely the yeah, nicest ones. yeah. and i still made myself a lot of shoes when i was an apprentice and a lot of them i'm not very impressed by today so i don't really want to wear them so i've given a lot of them away and some of them i've, I've actually just thrown in the garbage because, uh, you know, I get bad thoughts when I see them around <laughs> and they take up a lot of space. And um, But I know that because uh, we also have another question from mm. uh, Tor, our mm. uh, friend, uh, yeah. who is saying, Follow why is he running around in New Balance shoes for 50 euros? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, usually that's I've, the answer to what you usually wear. I try to make sure I can find them for a lot less than that. <laughs> uh, but... Um, I'm really treating myself if they're in the 50 pound range. Uh, no, I uh, I wear a lot of New Balance shoes in the workshop. They fit me really well. I've have a I've had an ankle from an old cycling injury that likes really cushioned shoes. Maybe not always, you know, quarter inch leather sold uh, <laughs> dress shoes all the time. Um, and yeah, I could probably build in some padding in my dress shoes, but the purist in me wants them to be exactly the way they should be. Um, and if you make last and do use leather dye and and working on a lot of other equipment, softer house shoes or or trainers are yeah. quite comfortable. And I feel when I wear shoes like that, it's obvious that it's not something that I made and they nobody's looking at them and, you know, looking at my shoes rather than my face when I'm talking to them about, you know, what's what's going on there south south below the ankles. Mm -hmm. um, and I also have like quite slim feet and they're not always the easiest to make a really beautiful pair from. So I rather they look at my samples or the shoes that I've made for other people because I generally, I generally hate the ways my shoes come out because I would much rather have like a little, a shorter, wider foot that gave like a more traditional shape, making pattern proportions look nice on really slim, long feet. It can be quite difficult. Um, to get the nice looking cap length or something that just doesn't look like a pencil, yeah. you know, because my, my feet just don't have much shape. They're just long and thin and on the flat side. Mm -hmm. So they're just, yeah, they're not what I imagine like the most beautiful shoe foot to make a shoe from. I prefer like a wider foot with with a little, little bunion on it or a high instep or, you know, something creates like a nice dynamic shape. Um, 
yeah, we'll see. I'm working on some shoes now that uh, COVID is limiting me from traveling a bit. So hopefully I'll have, have something on that I feel a bit more comfortable and that feels representative of, of my brand at the yeah. moment. So so that I won't have to have this question again. I have to keep years. this. Um, yeah, it comes up on Instagram fairly frequently. So yeah. I need to shut those people up. <laughs> and uh, Toros has another question, uh, which I'm sure you've had before as well, but uh, which is the most strange or most extreme shoe that you've done? Yeah, like you said, it's a quite common question, especially for people that, you know, might just find out that you have this job where you make mm. fairly expensive shoes for for uh, all kinds of different people. And and to be honest, the the my answer would be it's very rare that you make very weird or crazy shoes. Um you know, I imagine that maybe companies that are known for making crazy shoes like Berluti or particularly come to mind, which have Not a big to production. To with Christophe yeah, Corte and obviously and, my one yeah. of my favorite people, Christophe Corte. Um, Who only makes crazy shoes. Yeah, I, it's been a while since I saw ah, something very classic there, but like he's a he has a very good eye, I think, and to make like really interesting more avant-garde shoes that look correct proportionally yeah. and doesn't just look like a mess is very, very difficult so all the respect to yeah. what Christoph does definitely. it's definitely an acquired taste um, and he knows that as well so it's I don't think he will take offense but yeah it's to to do something interesting and unique that looks like nothing else but still has its own beauty in the world of classic shoes is yeah something that's very difficult to do and i see people try to you know make a shoe like nobody's ever seen before and most of them frankly look like shit so i think that's why you see so little of it because it's quite difficult and you know, I have some friends that work at Beluti and they make a lot of adventurous shoes as well. And a lot of them are definitely not to my taste, but um, it, it's nice that these brands are out there. Because I think if it wasn't for those kind of companies like Corte many years ago when they started out making very unique shoes and, and Beluti as well. I don't think there would have been much room in the marketplace for like a G&G &G or or someone like me who obviously like builds on my my history with G&G &G, with more slightly sharper shoes like that kind of mix of mm, traditional patina. English styles and adding patina to the to the shoes as well which is obviously something that's very French to most people so there's a lot of people that would probably not look at the kind of shoes that that I make if they weren't something more adventurous because mm. you know they might they use maybe they used to wear something classic like an edward green shoe or something and they see a berluti shoe and it's like oh that's a bit too much maybe but they're they get a little bit bored with the super classic so i think it's they break a lot of ground for for the the world of bespoke shoemakers to to find a niche for themselves so somebody has to be like the the rebel and make make these shoes so that the rest of us can you know find our own voice and our own you know um, 
market basically because yeah. yeah hopefully there's a shoe uh, there's a there's a bespoke shoe out there for everybody what what, uh, what would you never do for type of shoes do you have anything the things that i try to avoid doing is things that i don't think i would do very well um I'm, I've been quite fortunate now that I've been at, around for about a decade now. So most people that come to me, especially after, you know, doing some interviews with you and with Kirby Allison and, and some other things that people are familiar with me and my work and come because they like me and my work. Um, it's very common for a lot of other shoemakers, especially starting out, that the customers come in with maybe a picture from another brand that's like, hey, can you do this? And basically, they like another brand that costs a lot more and they want a new shoemaker that may be at a bit more approachable price point to do that. And a lot of times you kind of get what you pay for <laughs> and it can be really difficult for a shoemaker to copy a style. And especially when you don't know, you know, that picture might be from somebody that has a completely different foot shape than this customer or, or whatever. And you, I, in those cases, I always try to tell people that I can make my interpretation of this, but I, I can't make it look like that picture mm. for various reasons. First of all, I am not the person that made that. And I think working the way I do, where I do basically more or less everything myself as far as pattern cutting and, you know, use some friends of mine for, for some of the, the the stitching and the closing of the upper, um, a lot of my personality goes into the work. And it's very hard to like rub that out and uh, try to follow another maker's footsteps, perhaps. So even if I try to make his shoe, it probably looks like my shoe to most people that they can see that I make it. And it's something that, you know, most of the time it's it's something I'm quite proud of that people consider my making to have an identity. Um, but it can get in the way when you're trying to, <laughs> to imitate or replicate a, a different style, especially if it's a different kind of different tradition of shoemaking altogether like it would be very difficult for me to make a kind of I don't know Austrian Hungarian type shoemaking which is a school and tradition of shoemaking it's kind of isolated from the London one hmm. even though in theory they're not that different but once you start working and you look at the end result you can see that they come from different <laughs> little uh, ecosystems yeah. alright uh, here's a question from uh, Deparotti boots. I think this is from Instagram. Yeah. And uh, so, how do you prepare the bottom of the last? Uh, do you try to mimic specific aspects of the structures of the foot and so on? So this is a a, a friend of mine. So mm -hmm. thanks for the question. Um, uh, the bottom of the last is probably one of the most important parts of the last because all your weight, your body weight, is going down. So it's on the pressure on the bottom of the foot. And the bottom of the last is obviously what supports that. And it depends a little bit on who the customer is and what he's looking for. Um, if Some people come in with like orthotics and things that they like to wear or been prescribed. 
and uh, to wear in their sports shoes and so on to correct knee alignments and all kinds of things uh, and it can be difficult for a traditional shoemaker to do exactly the things that the orthotics do depending on because sometimes they've been building a certain amount of flex in them and so on and they're not completely rigid and it can be um, traditional leather footwear is not really suitable for this kind of fine tuning of flex it's more about like fitting and supporting but you know it's not performance footwear it's a compromise between comfort and elegance basically and the longevity of the product and but i try to have at least like from the heel to the ball joint of the foot to have something that is kind of contoured to mimic the shape of a foot and the differences is we put on the last what we call like a feather edge which is the like a, you basically put a corner of the last which will be a guide to the insole shape and it's basically there to make the shoemaking easier you need a design to know the balance of the shoe whether because if you had a round bottom it would just kind of tilt side to side like like um um, like an egg <laughs> a little yeah. bit and it would be hard to balance the shoe and there were early lasts you know the, the, and the feather edge more or less kind of developed more for manufacturing because in the the machine wanted an edge to use to but the early lasts a lot of them were very foot shaped mm. but it made it into a nightmare to make to balance the shoes consistently and basically the shoemaker made its own feather edge with the insole or whatever um, so I try to be somewhere in the, in the middle of that because to get a really nice crisp sole finishing you need that kind of guide that little especially around the heel seat mm. you need that to to build the heel as a reference point mm. to make sure that everything is nice and straight but then you still kind of dome the heel and so on so that the foot can kind of sink into the shoe yeah, a little bit. Because that's one of the main differences I would say that I experience from good spoke shoes is that the whole heel is sort of cupped. Mm. Uh, also the bottom of the heel uh, uh, instead of uh, having this hollow space in the back which is more yeah. usually the case for... Uh, flat-heeled uh, um, uh, ready-to-wear shoes where mm. you have, uh, have this metal plate uh, yeah, for yeah. the manufacturing process and exactly. it has to be quite flat. It doesn't follow the foot shape. No, you, you know, especially for manufacturing, the heel seats are quite flat mm. because it's really hard to make a heel stack, a pre-made heel stack fit on something domed. Or you could do a domed, you know, theoretically you mm. could go do a really domed heel uh, heel block that would fit on a really domed last. But if you have a really domed last, you have to make a really domed insole. Mm. And, you have to, and to do all these things, you start mimicking a lot of the things we do as bespoke shoemaker. And they can be done, but a lot of these things are very time consuming. And then it starts to add a lot to the cost. So you're getting closer and closer and closer to a bespoke price point. Um, and to create consistent the big, biggest issue in a factory is consistency not to make one good shoe but to make hundreds of them every week thousands sometimes thousands and to be able to do that you need to make it easy so you and uh, 
everyone makes a different compromise. But one of the compromises is that you need to have last shapes that are kind to the workers and kind to the equipment. So, so that these uh, workers and equipment can do the best job possible. But like you said, it, you know, when you put, a, put your feet in a bespoke shoe made on a bespoke last that with a very kind of ergonomic shape, you really notice it. Mm. And then it's up to the consumer if they think it's worth it. Mm, if, yeah. or if, and some people maybe need that support more mm. than others. You know, when you have a really domed heel cup, you, know, you feel a lot more supported. You put you spread your weight out a lot more rather than just at one point and that can make you able to wear the shoes for longer in comfort um, and then you can you know you can support your arch if they're slightly dropped so that you you have better alignment in the knees you know i would never say that these shoes are orthopedic shoes but um, there's like a term within the industry called kind of ortho bespoke mm -hmm. which is basically like basically nicer looking bespoke or orthopedic shoes because orthopedic shoes have a reputation of being awful sometimes and a lot of it is because they're paid for by the government as a aid a medical aid for a patient and these things had to be made to hit a low price point because they're really just a utilitarian object that as long as it corrects the issue that's all it needs to do mm. but some people you know might not want something nicer to wear or think that their shoes are are ugly and you know almost highlight their ailment <laughs> rather than disguise it um so there is a lot of it's i think it's way more common now that customers come and they both want a beautiful pair of shoes but also for them to have more of like an ergonomic fit that's going to help them and not hurt them yeah. with certain issues and, um, and i try to do whatever it takes if it, if they come in with an orthotic that has a shape that works to them i sometimes try to copy that shape yeah. completely but some people come in and they don't have any problems and if you do a super ergonomic shape they might not be really comfortable with that because when it's that close fitting i think we talked about it the other day with when you have like the metatarsal area yeah, with the, the pelot. Uh, yeah, we call it pelot in mm. Sweden. But yeah, it's like the, you support the metatarsal arch. So it's almost like you have a little bump in mm. the middle yeah, right behind the ball of your foot to support the metatarsal arch. And if you build that up to fit very closely, it won't allow the foot's natural flex and it can be a little bit uncomfortable. So you might want to like tone it down a little bit. It's nice to feel that it's there. But if it's really built up, it might feel really supportive and comfortable for 10 minutes, but it might not do it for 10 hours. Mm. And then it can be really hard to change that again. So I, in some of these cases, I try to, if, you know, if it's not broke, I'm not going to try to fix it. So I try to just make sure that a customer with still healthy fit has some, or healthy feet has something close fitting and that's in, in harmony with his foot shape. But I don't try to, correct people that don't need correcting you know so that that can cause more problems that weren't there in the first place so it's definitely a case-to-case -case basis but when i look at the bottom of my loss compared to a lot of other makers i definitely go for a more um more built up arch and try to fit the metatarsal area as well just because partially because i like the way it looks and also it gives you that 
you can feel the, the shoe touching you all over rather than having tight areas and then areas that are just like empty cavities. So it, it creates a more interesting shape. And the, and when you look inside, you see shape in the insole and, you know, not everybody cares, but, you know, some people do. Uh, it just makes it unique and different and if it if it gives me a kick and it gives the wearer a nice experience, you know, the, you should put it in there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is from Martin Krasovic. Uh, and he asks if, could Mr. Wigan break down the costs of producing bespoke shoes uh, of this level and how that is reflected mm-hmm. in their relatively high price? Well, the easiest questions I've seen No, there. because I think it's very difficult to price. Basically, what we try to do is to find the price point where every customer can get serviced in a way that's appropriate to them. And it's very difficult to predict how complicated each project is going to be. If some people have a very easy fit... Um, you know you don't spend a lot of time or make on the fitting process but maybe they are they have a order a shoe style that's very complicated so it's and then you might have a, a person that orders a very classic kind of simple shoe style but they're a very complicated fit or they might have other demands that that requires a lot of time or they have both Or they have both, (laughs) which is not completely uncommon, Um, especially if you make more, you know, adventurous footwear. And rather than pricing everybody differently, we have a price point where you basically, it's kind of like an insurance policy that if there is a problem, we can afford to rectify it. If it's a fit issue, we fix it. If it's a color issue, we fix it. If it's just anything that's, you know, not, you know, people are underwhelmed with the, with what they've received, which is so far hasn't happened. But it's also about, so basically what you have to cost into each shoe is materials and time. Mm-hmm. Uh, And, and the time is definitely the highest uh, cost. You definitely pay more for the time. Uh, the leathers are probably the most expensive leathers in the world. But compared to the time, they're quite affordable. Um, but for first pairs of shoes with multiple fittings and maybe trips and hours spent out of the workshop going to see people to fit them and whether it's in in the UK or in the US or here in Sweden um, all of that has to be paid for and uh, people want you to come and to do your trunk shows fairly often to make the fitting time shorter so to make sure that all this happens in a smooth manner um, and also that for us to be able to afford to when we design a pattern for a customer to make sure do a test does it look as good as I want it to look if it doesn't I need to be do another one 
So I do multiple tests of each pattern to make sure that it looks right and both it looks right on left and right foot as well if the feet are really different. So in theory you can cut a lot of patterns in an hour if you want them to but in practice to make them look the way they should look at our price point and to meet the client's expectation it can take a day and uh, and that's what and then you're looking at probably eight hours instead of one hours and if you if you say maybe if you're earning I don't know how you're costing it it might be really different from each firm but if you're costing your hours including workshop space and um, equipment and and so on whether you're costing it at 10 hour, 10 pounds 10 pounds an hour or 25 pounds an hour once you go from 1 to 10 hours the price increase significantly um, and uh, it's basically you just pay for the time and for us to be able to fix a problem mm. and I think that the, the, the fixing potential issues um, that's a big part because I think there's a lot of firms out there that might price themselves lower and if they need to fix something it puts them in a really financial strained position which forces you to be stressed uh, and it forces you to maybe not stress over fixing the problem but you have less time to spend on the on the on the next project for another client and um, and that's unfortunate and that that makes it impossible for that shoemaker to to deliver his best there needs to be a level of financial comfort to create something really great that people and we're basically selling a product that in people's minds and hopefully in our own minds as well is some of the best in the world and to do that consistently over and over again you have to make sure that you are happy in your life you know not uh, strained too strained financially because you know as an apprentice you might be able to live off of the passion of shoemaking but as you get older I don't think anybody would like to feel like they've been punished because they picked shoemaking as their profession you know I believe that the people that make really beautiful shoes in the world are unique people that have a very unique commitment and that they should be rewarded and I can I can assure everyone that there is there are very few really good rich shoemakers and I think Jesper can yes. <laughs> attest to that as well uh, there's nobody getting if you want to get rich get away from shoemaking <laughs> yes everyone if you want to earn a quick buck um, run while you can yeah <laughs> but if you were to um, sort of uh, I know it's it varies but I know mm. that people are very interested in mm. to sort of break and what how much time do you spend on first uh, making the last mm. and the fitting shoe mm. and then correcting the last and then yeah doing pattern and bottom uh, making closing and bottom yeah. making and the finishing and so on yeah i think the easier the 
The easiest one to break down we can start with is basically if you have a loss that fits mm. and you because the fitting process is so unpredictable. You know, you can have do one fitting and it's really good and then you're looking at like maybe loss making, pattern cutting, making a fitting shoe and so on and some adjustments. You may be looking at two days, three mm. days. Um but if you have a complicated fit you might have to do all those things three, four times. And then you're looking at, you know, you're getting close to two weeks almost once you're done. And then then it's almost like um, a non-profitable exercise that you just have to do to make sure that the client is happy. And hopefully you build a relationship where you allow to earn some of that time and money back later on future projects. Um, but if I have a loss that fits and if I do cut a pattern, cut the leather, sew the upper and then assemble the shoe... And then all the finishing process of the upper, whether it's antiquing, patina and shining. You're probably looking at about probably like 80 hours on average. You know, if everything goes according to plan, you might be down to 60. But I've been doing this for 10 years and I've yet to have a project go all to plan. <laughs> There's always something that's, you know, not quite right. You know, you might get to the point where you've cut the pad and made the upper and then you pull the upper over and when you stretch the leather a little flaw pops up, mm. a little vein goes somewhere and you just um you can't make it go away. So you just put it in a box and make another one. And start all over again. And um uh that that's that's what has to be paid for again. And these things with the un, with the uh, um, uh, unforgiving material as leather, these kind of things happen all the time. And it's not because the shoemakers are bad; it's the nature of the craft. No. If you visit the bespoke shoemakers, you always find <laughs> half uh, done projects laying around. Uh, yeah, that, uh, something has come up, and uh, yeah, yeah, and it's like okay, this is not quite right, or that mm. you know, this, or you make an error, you, you slip with the knife. Yeah, you know, it's you know, usually those things doesn't happen too often, but mm. they're bound to happen sooner or later if you do it long enough. It will happen, and it will be horrible when it does. But it's um, that's what happens when you have people making things. They make human mistakes, um, and especially something that takes so much time. When you're sitting with a project for hours and hours, the more the more you do it, the more likely you are to make a mistake. Um, so yeah, there's just. And I think I talked to a fellow the other day that's just started shoemaking, and I think. I think everyone who starts shoemaking, there's so many little things you do that you don't really think about. That if you do a sh anyone who does a shoemaking course, there's so much time spent doing little things that you don't really consider shoemaking, just preparing to do something. And uh, and there's a lot of stuff that can go wrong there as well, especially whether it be skiving, whether it be when you do finishing you know to do beautiful finishing is something that just takes years to perfect even though you know all the tricks just doesn't happen automatically you follow the instruction manual and then you're done you're like what what's this you know so it's it's one of those things that you just have to do over and over and over again and um yeah like about the breakdown of the cost it's basically a shoe takes between you know 80 to 100 hours when you actually break it down realistically 
um, if you include all the little jobs that need doing, just cleaning them, lacing them, put them in a box, packing them up safely so they don't get destroyed by the shipping company. Uh, or once you start till they're actually out the door, it's definitely 80 to 100 hours, mm -hmm. mm, always. Yeah. Um, and so then, it's, um yeah, <laughs> a lot of hours uh, behind it, obviously. Yeah, need to cost. and I think you can see it. Like, I know a lot of firms in Europe that make more uh, lower cost bespoke shoes. And you can see it in the product that they just have to move through the hands or through the people in the workshop a lot faster. And you just, it's easy to, there's an issue there that you don't see, pay attention to. And, um, and when you look at shoes that are given more time and more attention, they just, they look better. They, you just, it's hard to work quick and perfect. Mm. You have to, you know, take a deep breath and chill a little bit. And, um, yeah, there's usually a reason for the price. Yeah, I would say there's, there's very few uh, real ripoffs coming out of independent shoemakers. Mm. I can't speak for all the, big firms out there but any small workshop with just a couple of people um, and I think also if I think it's important for the consumer to look at the product and make their own decision is does this investment give me the emotional reward that I'm looking for because the reason we look at beautiful products is because we want to feel something and people have to trust their instincts a little bit. There's a lot of there's a lot of forums and things out there where people just want to be told what's the best shoe, and there is no such thing. And people have to you know look around, see what they feel like. And if you go to a shoemaker and the shoe he makes for you is comfortable and you think it's beautiful, then you have to decide what it's worth to you. Um, but I can assure you there's very few rip-offs out there. Even, I would say even um, an average shoemaker is a very hard worker. Mm. Um, I know a lot of people that work a lot less for a lot more. Um, it's not a job that you can kind of coast through. Um, but yeah, the consumer should educate themselves to know what they want and then make a decision. A lot of things that we buy are not always, you know, rational. Um, and some, some shoemakers might look at the way I work and think, oh, that's a waste of time or that's really slow. But to me, it's the only way I know how to make shoes. If somebody told me, do the shoes in half the time and sell them for half the price, I wouldn't know where to start. Like I'm, I've never done done that. I only, I can only make shoes like this. And maybe one day I, I could if I had to. But that's a, that's a new skill. Mm -hmm. Making shoes in forty hours instead of eighty. That's a different job almost. Because I don't, I don't know where I would cut half the time. <laughs> I know where I maybe could cut half an hour or you know whatever. But to chop half the time off, yeah, that'd be a. That's going to be a long project. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Daniel Wiegand, 
Thank you very much once Thank again you. for being part of the shoe podcast. Thank you for letting me talk uh, talk about <laughs> shoes a bit. It's my favorite thing. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this Q and A special of the podcast. For much more on classic shoes, visit shoegazing.com. And as you might know, those that want to support shoegazing and their continued work producing high-level content, you can become a patron and contribute with anything from $3 a month. See patreon.com forward slash shoegazing blog for more info on this. Both big and small contributions are much appreciated. No new podcast episodes have been recorded yet, and as I mentioned before, Corona makes things a bit more complicated, since I prefer doing the interviews in person. I think they come out better when you can sit face to face and talk with the interviewee. But fear not, the Shoegazing Podcast will be back eventually with a new episode. So hear you again soon.